0: Hi everyone. How you doing? All right? Good. I got a call uh, about the middle, I think roughly about the middle of the week if, he, if I could uh, preach today and I said yes. Uh, and then I thought well I need to figure out what it is I'm going to speak to about. So I, as I said this morning, I fasted between meals and uh, sought the Lord and uh, of all the things that I could have spoken about, I came to the conclusion that I'm going to need to speak to the church about unity. And um, so that's what I'm going to speak to you tonight. I did that this morning, so maybe I'll get this one right. I had the trial run this morning, so maybe this one will be okay. Let's see. It's a impre- very, very important subject because... Um, I think even more so at the moment, because if you look around us in, in society, it's, it's pretty tumultuous. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, I think in my, in my memory, it's one of the most extraordinary times in my lifetime. And I've been here a few summers. Um, and I think it's not just within the society. It's actually um, in parts of the church. You are aware of things that are going on in... in uh, in the church, and it's very distressing and very upsetting to see what's happening. And so, I thought we'd have a look at this subject together. It's, it's not a light subject, uh, so, but it is what it is. It's important to look at together. And I want to talk, uh, rather, look at this subject from, from, sort of, from three perspectives or from three different points of view in Scripture, because where do we get our information from? Where do we get what we need to know? We get it from Scripture. So I want to look at, first of all, King David. What's King David got to say to us about unity? And what's the Lord Jesus got to say to us about unity? And finally, what's the Apostle Paul got to say to us about unity? And I'm only just skimming a couple of verses together of the many, many verses that we could pull up which really deal with this incredibly important subject. So first of all, let's look together at what King David had to say. And the, the classic uh, scripture for, for unity is Psalm 133. And that should come up. And I'll just read it with you. How good and pleasant it is when brothers, brethren, people live together in unity. Verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. This is kind of interesting stuff. But the the thing I want to get to is the final stanza of verse 3, for it says this, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So where is there in this particular context? Well, there is in the place of unity, not a physical location per se, although of course that includes a physical location. It is a place where people come together in a sense of oneness and harmony. And David is saying, King David is saying, it's in that place there Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, it's in that place of unity and oneness and harmony where God will pour out his blessing. In the old King James, it says something like this, Be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And so we have this notion of maintaining peace, but I want to go back with you uh, again in a few minutes it prompts a heavenly response. So when people gather together in unity, it prompts a heavenly response. I reading, was reading this particular commentary called the New Bible Commentary and the guy was writing the commentary on this particular I, I don't know where you read commentaries, but I do. Um, this is what I had to say. Where where brethren dwell together in unity, it prompts a heavenly response of unstinting abundance. Something about people coming together in a oneness of spirit, a oneness of heart, a oneness of purpose, draws something from God. God is attracted to that. As David made the comment, Behold how good and how pleasant it is, When he saw the people, all the tribes of Israel coming up to to Mount Zion for the festivities and the celebrations and the various rituals that were going to take place, he observed how good it is. And God says the same thing. When he observes unity, it's that place where he says, I will command my blessing. Not merely bestow, it's one of the scriptures, one of the the translations says, it's a little weak. But if you go back to some of the older translations, it says, and in there, God commands the blessing. I want to be, we need to be under the commanded blessing of God. If God commands it, then that's all there is to it. For there is no higher authority than God. If God makes a decision to respond to people who are flowing in a particular way, then nothing can prevent that blessing from coming. Conversely, where there's no unity, God is not attracted to that in this sense. And when there is disharmony and disunity, there is no blessing. Believe me. I've been in situations over the years of pastoring where that is absolutely true. And we don't want to go there. I want to say also before I go on, I'm not saying that we have a problem at the moment. I'm just simply coming to you tonight, giving you a heads up. Should there be situations and circumstances that may put stress on our unity, there are ways to respond so that we can continue in the blessing of God. So that was King David, briefly. You might not think that was brief, but believe me, that was brief. And then next, of course, what does Jesus have to say about it? Sounds like a wristband. I would say, more importantly than anyone else we can look at in Scripture, is what Jesus has to say about it. What did Jesus have to say about unity? Let's read together John seventeen twenty to 23 from the NIV. My prayer is not for them alone. Because he already prayed that unity would come to the disciples in verse 11. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, that's us. That all of them may be one, that's us. And so on. Interestingly, this prayer, which is called the High Priestly Prayer, was prayed in the upper room on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion and passion. If you knew that tomorrow you were going to face horrendous humiliation, cruel punishment, and ultimate death, what would you talk about? You would clearly talk about those things which were extremely important. Now, everything that Jesus says is extremely important, but in this particular situation that Jesus found himself in, under the direction and auspices of God, the Father, Jesus is beginning to talk to his disciples and pray to his father about significant issues. And one of the significant issues he talks about is this very subject of unity. That they may be one. He says it three times, four if you include verse 11. Three times he talks about that they may be one, that they may be one, and that they may be perfected in unity. The word one in the Greek can be translated unity. Unity, unity, unity. Jesus, looking down through the corridors of time to the church age, both then and now, was praying to his Father that a certain kind of quality or dimension will be within his body, within the church. And that, of course, is unity, oneness, harmony. For various reasons, including this one, which is very important, that the world might know that the Father sent him. The world. We know why but so that the world, the not yet Christians, would understand that there is something special going on among those people. Even more so, in times of turmoil, we should be walking to the beat of a different drum. So why is unity important? Well, first of all, because it's a place where God will command his blessing. Secondly... Because it's important to Jesus. I think personally, that's enough. If it's important to Jesus, that would cause him to pray in his darkest hour. If it's important to him, then it must be. It must be important to me and important to us. Let's go to another scripture, still continue on about what Jesus can teach us about this subject. And it's found in Mark chapter 3, verses 24 to 25. And this is what it says. If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided, or a family, or whatever, or a church, that house cannot stand. That's a serious statement, isn't it? It's a categorical statement. Jesus is saying to his disciples and those to whom he was preaching, Responding to an accusation from the Pharisees, he's saying that if a house is divided, if there's division, it can't prosper. So therefore, here is another reason why unity, embracing unity, living by the principles required to continue unity is important. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking. This is the highest authority that there is speaking. This is not a mere philosopher or a mere teacher. This is the Lord speaking. And when we read it, and when I read it, it's speaking to you and it's speaking to me. The history of the church, if you read church history, both ancient and recent, you will see that it's littered with all these issues of division and problems. And it does not bring glory to God at all. The thing that really upsets me so much is how that Jesus and his reputation, not that he's insecure, but how Jesus and his reputation is smeared by when we, as the church, behave inappropriately. And I hate that. I want to see Jesus glorified. I want to see Jesus exalted. I want people to respect him and respond to him in a manner that he's worthy of. And one of the things that we can do is live harmoniously together and present a common front to the world. Let's have a look at what Paul's got to say. Paul's got a lot to say about this. But just look briefly at a couple of things together tonight. First of all, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 makes a very interesting statement. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity or maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. So, what that is saying to us is that it's up to us. You see, there is a unity that's been given by God to the church, and if you read uh, Philippians, uh, sorry, excuse me, Ephesians four verses four to six, you will see these wonderful words: "That one body." One Lord, one baptism, etc., etc., and one Father overall. There is a one given to the church. There is, there is a commonality in the church of all these things that God has placed within the church that bind us together. They are the core values of the church. And so we already have a oneness or unity given by the Father. It is therefore our responsibility, as this scripture says, to make sure we preserve it or maintain it and not to fracture it. And that's what we have to do. The Holy Spirit will help us to do it, but he won't do it for us. We have to use our wills. Our thinking, etc., to do this. Another scripture from Paul is Philippians one twenty-seven. And I'll better get cracking here, otherwise you'll never go home. By the way, if you do get bored with this, it's fine for you to leave. A... <laughs> it's happened. <clears throat> Philippians 1.27 Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. Conducting yourselves in a worthy manner. Then whether I come to see you, Or whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news of the gospel. We have been given a responsibility to live or conduct ourselves in such a way as to fight for, not physically, but spiritually, fight for the wonder of the gospel. to live in a particular way. And in a few minutes, I want to show us some practical ways about how we might do that. But Paul says we ought to stand firm, standing together, shoulder to shoulder, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his church, for the sake of his great name. We, together, can do that. In fact, not just can, we are required to do that for the reputation of the gospel of the church and of our Lord. The New Bible Commentary again says, the greatest hindrance of the advancement of the gospel has been the inconsistency and disunity of Christians. And as I said I don't think we have an issue at the moment, but just in case something happens that should upset the equilibrium that we're experiencing. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 and Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 14, the Apostle Paul gives us eight principles that if we espouse these principles... And if we live out these principles under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we will preserve unity. We will maintain what we've been given. They're very simple things. They sound almost banal, but they're not. They're profoundly important. They're simple because they're achievable. They're not simplistic. So these eight things are in these scriptures. Let's read them together. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. The Apostle Paul, as you read there, wrote to these churches which he established from prison again paul was writing from an incredibly difficult situation and wasn't just caught in a situation just to talk banalities just to talk trivia paul was in a situation which was so constraining and so concerned about the church was he that he wrote these different epistles containing these thoughts about unity. And if you read all of these epistles, you'll find scattered through there is this whole thing of unity and oneness and harmony. But let's just look at these for a few minutes. These eight principles will deal with our treatment of others, our estimate of ourselves, and our reaction to the treatment of others. Those three. Those three things are what we deal with in life, right? Our treatment of others, our estimate of ourselves, and our reaction to the treatment by others. First of all, humility. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean putting yourself down and living in such a way as to feel... No, it doesn't mean that. It simply means not considering oneself better than another. It means to have a correct estimate of yourself absolutely. But not considering oneself better than another. It means and implies the need To be self-assertive. And this directly affects our treatment of other people. Jesus didn't insist upon his rights, but humbled himself. Never ceases to amaze me. Secondly, gentleness and meekness. It means submissiveness, appropriate submissiveness, not doormat, not being put down or pushed down or whatever. No, it means being submissive to not simply to Liz, but to one another. Being prepared to submit in love and in grace To each other. It doesn't mean weakness. One person said it's basically Christian courtesy. Treating others well. It says Moses was the meekest man that there ever was. Moses wasn't a weak person, he just had a temperament such that he preferred others and minister to them from that place number three patience how are you doing with that? not a great strength of mine however patience what is it? believe it or not this is what it really means when you study it out patience it doesn't just mean, in this context it just doesn't mean well you know Now, this is what it means. Willingness to bear with the irritating faults or traits in others or what you dislike in other people. Willingness to bear with the irritating faults or traits in others or what you dislike in others. You see, these qualities, if we take them on board... And they become important to us, and we allow the Holy Spirit to work them into us and then work them out from us, we will maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. It means willingness to forgive and overlook grievances, it doesn't mean overlooking sin. Or treating it lightly, but it means having such an attitude to people that you are willing to forgive and overlook. It means this: a willingness to give way when no principle is at stake, but only some person, personal opinion or desire. It means a willingness to give way when no principle is at stake, but only some personal opinion or desire. Number four, compassion. Compassion is pity and tenderness toward the suffering and misery of another, but with the desire to do something about it. Empathy This whole thing of empathy is feeling in with someone. Compassion is feeling in but with a desire to do something about it. Jesus was constantly, if you read the Gospels, moved with compassion. He didn't leave it at that. He just didn't feel for them. Jesus was moved with compassion and then acted in a way that the people who he felt compassion for were ministered to. Blessed them constantly. It's an inner yearning which fills deeply for other people. Number five, kindness. Seems a bit boring. Kindness. What is it then? It's the desire for the well-being and the good of another person. To treat people with respect, to be generous and courteous. To see the other other people as more important than yourself. Not coming from a place, as I said before, of putting yourself down. No, having a correct estimate of yourself. But from that place of security, ministering kindness, desiring that the other person and the other people are well looked after. Six, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another, even if that person you are supposed to give seems undeserving. That's a bit tricky. Someone once said in regard to forgiveness, give them a gift that they don't deserve, not begrudgingly or to hurt, but from a place of grace, giving a gift of forgiveness. Well, who did that? Jesus. On the cross, in shame and ignominy, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We have a wonderful example and a very high example to follow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number seven, long-suffering or forbearance. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. It means bearing with one another's faults and weaknesses. It's one's response when provoked. One's response when provoked. How do we respond when we are provoked? What do we do? How do we react? Very important. In chapter 33, the end of chapter 33 of Exodus, into early parts of chapter 34, where Moses was having this extraordinary conversation with God and talks about, show me your glory, show me... and God responds, well, my face you cannot see, but there's a place by me in the cleft of the rock. Stand there and my, I will pass by and declare my name. And God, Moses is there and God sees God's back parts and God begins to declare, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering. And it's an interesting thing in the Hebrew this this notion of long suffering, it means long of nose. It's uh, a good one. Long of nose. What in the world does that mean? Well, it simply means something like this: that there is this, and it's a it's a word picture to help us to understand what God is like. It's this kind of. Notion that when, when there's provocation coming from mankind, God is like he takes a, a breath before he responds. How do we react when people treat us poorly or unjustly or rudely or whatever? We're not. Robots, We have a response. We are responsive beings, people. But how as Christian people should we act in here to show the people out there that Jesus came? What is different about us? Or what should be different about us? Well, we refuse to retaliate. We consider the other person more important, not from a place, as I said before, of insecurity and putting ourselves down, but from a place of security in God. Knowing that as we do these things, the blessing of God will flow to those situations. That's why David said, where there's unity, God will command his blessing. God likes it when we unite united. So just have that and think for a minute about some of these concepts and how to respond. It doesn't mean you can't be truthful, but you can be truthful with grace and kindness and long-suffering, etc. Number eight, put on love. Paul says, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love. What kind of love? Well, you just put your head on the side and you just sort of go, ah. No, that's not love. That's just, I don't know what that is. That's just horrible. <laughs> put on love. Love's a decision. This kind of love is a decision. It's not an emotion. It's... There's emotion associated with it, but it doesn't stem from emotion. It stems from a decision. Agape love. The God kind of love. Agape love is this. Unsolicited, caring, self-giving, sacrificial, others-orientated love. It's giving something. Not because we have a sense or an expectation of something in return. Not because we see something in the one we want to love, see something in there and that it causes something to come. Now of course that happens, we're human beings. But this kind of love is deliberate. It's intentional. It's purposeful. And it's powerful. And Paul says that this kind of love is the thing that will cause all of this other stuff to be wrapped up in a perfect bond. Without this love, the other seven things I read to you are simply a list of rules. We don't want just rules. We want something that emanates from our heart and from the heart of God. Friends, unity is biblical. These principles, incidentally, can work in any organization, really. But they must be in his church and they must be between his church by the grace of God. In closing, have you heard that before? In closing, I want to read you a, uh, some verses that the Apostle Paul wrote from prison to the church he founded, the church at Philippi. and what you 'll find here is a plea from the Apostle Paul to those people. Paul is wondering, how are they going?" And he sends a letter. The Epistle to the Philippians, and in that letter, he says this. And I want to read to you from the Passion Translation. We're going to put it up there, and I want to read together. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his church from prison, and as we read it together tonight, this is a letter down through the millennia from the Apostle Paul to us tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, the Passion Translation. Look at how much encouragement you've found in your relationship with the Anointed One. You are filled to overflowing with His comforting love. You have experienced a deepening friendship with the Holy Spirit and have felt His tender affection and mercy. So I am asking you, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity with one heart, one passion and united in one love. Walk together with one harmonious purpose and you will fill my heart with unbounded joy. Be free from pride-filled opinions for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts. But in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. And consider the example that Jesus, the Anointed One, Has set before us. Let this mindset become your motivation. He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Friends, God loves unity. God requires unity. God has given unity. He blesses unity. And we have a responsibility by His grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain it. God bless you.